Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. All right. Um, going back old school, um, Did the Apostles Creed and the entire uh, Lord's Supper without any notes at all? It's all on my iPad. So, I think I've almost got it memorized, it sounds like. Um, And I'm doing notes from paper this week. So, my hope is just that the Holy Spirit would would lead and guide and that we would see all that, that God has for us in this text, which is so good. Um, kind of helps us to kind of I don't know I feel like maybe we're kind of putting a pin in the end of, of John the Baptist's earthly ministry kind of where he's going to try and kind of leave some things for us and we're going to see some very awesome things about Christ and and even about baptism which is really good I'm, I'm, I'm very very happy with this text because it's so it's so rich so I want to get into it. Now here, the infallible inspired word of God, John 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant, that we can count on it that we can trust that this is what you have said. 
the words that these men wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if we say, thus saith the Lord, we should follow it with these verses. This scripture, which is your word, we honor you and thank you so much that as we dig into the word, you will not leave us alone, but the Holy Spirit will be our help. He will guide us. He will teach us all things about you. Holy Spirit, illuminate this path for us. Be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path with your word. God, we just ask that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is true. In Christ's name, amen. So, as we go through this kind of narrative a little bit, I see three sections. I see three different independent things that are kind of happening that are important, that we need to kind of break down each one. So it's not necessarily a verse-by-verse verse this time, but I want to go section-by-section section because I think there's some really important meat uh, in this text for us to kind of maybe take in and grasp to help us. First, I want to break down this first section of verses 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So, this first set of texts reveals something extremely important. It reveals the importance of the sacrament of baptism. How do we know that baptism is important for the believer? What does the first verse say Jesus was doing? It says that Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptizing. So those who would diminish baptism as an important sacrament, I would say you better show caution because Jesus himself was baptizing. We know that everywhere Jesus went, he preached. It's very clear in Scripture. But it also says here that he was baptizing people. So I would say to those who make baptism into a fun end of service to get everybody cheering to have musical crescendos. And then when you ask the people, uh, what was the baptism about? And they can't even tell you that. I would say you are diminishing the importance of baptism. I want to kind of go into baptism just a little because we see John, the Baptist, is named after the fact that he baptized people and Jesus himself embarked into <coughs> ministry baptizing people. Baptism is an important Christian rite. And I want to read to you from the 1689 Baptist Confession, London Baptist Confession of Faith, because um, this is a, a confession that I hold to. And it says something very awesome about baptism. Um, it's uh, chapter 29, paragraph 1 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Christ. Though To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection. 
of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. It says so much in that about baptism that I think we need to look at it. Let's talk about baptism for a minute. What this says about baptism is, is backed up completely by Scripture. And the fact that we see the Lord Jesus Christ doing it, we know we can't just gloss over it. It's not just something that's okay to do or, or a cool thing to do or a fun way to end a service. It says that it is an ordinance of the New Testament. Now, let's look at what the New Testament really is. The New Testament isn't just the last part of our Bible. The New Testament is the consummation of all that is prophesied in the Old Testament about the new covenant that we would have in God through God the Son dying for our sins. And one of the ordinances, do you know what an ordinance is? If the, if the city makes an ordinance, that means, guess what? You've got to follow that rule. An ordinance of this new covenant, of this new testament, is baptism. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is absolutely essential. It is required for the believer to do. <laughs> Secondly, not only is it ordained by the New Testament and the, and the New Covenant, it's ordained by Christ. Christ himself baptized. Christ himself said, preach the gospel and baptize them. If the Lord says to do it, we do it. And we do it with reverence and giving it the, the honor that it deserves. I like how it's said that it is a sign of fellowship with Christ. The fact that it is a sign with fellowship with Christ. Why is it a sign of fellowship with Christ? Very simply this. It is a symbol. As we go down into the water, we are baptized, being baptized into his death. And then we're being brought out of the water into newness of life. It's a death and a resurrection. And we're doing it to be in fellowship with the one who died and rose again for us. It shows that we are engrafted. Engrafted is a word we don't use much. It's a gardening term, really, if you think about it. Um, I don't know how many of you had a mama like I did. My mom had went and got a stem off a pink-blooming dogwood tree and brought it home to our white dogwood tree. And she clipped and she taped it and, we, and, it, and she was engrafting the pink into the white to see what would happen. I don't think it ever did anything, but it was supposed to. That is engrafting. We, who were a branch that was worthy to be thrown in the fire, has instead, through Christ and what he has accomplished, been engrafted into the family tree of God as sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. Baptism is an absolute symbol of the fact that that we are now sons and daughters on the family tree of God. We're not little gods. 
We are not God Himself. We are sons and daughters of the living God. So, we next see that it is a symbol of the cleansing of our sin. Now, here's the thing we don't believe, okay? We don't get it mixed up. Baptism does not save us. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. That is what we're justified by. That is what saves us. Baptism is a required ordinance that comes after that justification. We're not saved by it. But what does it symbolize? Well, look at the way it was used by John the Baptist. Baptism in those days was a very specific thing. It was the way that the Gentiles could be cleaned up enough to come into the temple and worship the one true God. They could be proselytized into the Jewish faith through a cleansing baptism. Now John started baptizing Jews. To cleanse them from what? Sin. He preached repentance from sin and baptism symbolizing a cleansing. So as we say that we, he is, uh, is a symbol of, of the remission of our sins, it is a showing that, hey, we have been made clean by the blood of Christ Jesus. Then it says, it's also our giving up and submitting to God that we are going to walk in newness of life. Baptism is one of the beginnings, one of the very beginnings of a brand new life, living a different way. Baptism should be part of how we explain who we are, how we are saved. Baptism is a part of that because if we've been baptized, we are making a public profession that I am now a follower of Christ and I will begin to follow His ways and do those things which He has asked for us to do. Which is awesome. So, do not diminish baptism as a significant sacrament. In, in the Christian church, in the Protestant church, we have two sacraments. We have the Lord's Supper, which we do every Sunday, and we have baptism, which we will do for any believer who has not been baptized and, and wants to be baptized. And they're important sacraments. The Catholic Church has seven. We have two because we see those in Scripture. Let's go to the next section that we need to look at. And that's verse 25 through 30. Maybe one of the most poignant things that ever happened in John the Baptist's ministry is right here. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So, John's disciples and a Jew got in a discussion over why are you baptizing Jews? Why do they need purification? They're part of God's chosen people. Well, in doing so, it started stirring the minds of the of John's disciples, and that they started to wonder and get a little upset that Jesus 
was getting more folks in his baptism lines than, than John was getting. They were, John was their rabbi. John was their teacher. They wanted John to get the recognition. And John does something that's so awesome. He reinforces what he's been teaching to them all along. That he is not the Christ. He is just the forerunner. John once again begins to point them to Christ. I like what it, what it says in verse 29. It says, The one who has the bridegroom one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. R.C. Sproul takes this personal statement by John. John is saying, I'm not the groom. The groom has the bride. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Jesus is the bridegroom. But John the Baptist was the best man. The best man in a wedding stands beside the groom and should be one of the most joyful people in the whole place. Seeing his friend, the groom, finally get his bride. So that's why John says, it, look, it's the, the bride goes to the bridegroom, but the friend who's standing by sees and hears him speaking and rejoices greatly. So John's saying, look, I hear him, and I'm not upset about this. I am rejoicing to the ultimate level because the one that I've been telling you about is here, and he's claiming his bride. So John truly understand, understood who Jesus was. And John truly understood who he was. And then he says something in verse 30 that I wish we would all hear and take to heart. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. This verse should be the theme and motto for every preacher, elder, or church. It's not about fame or status. We need to point to Christ. He needs to be magnified. He needs to increase, not us. We need to give Him the glory and give up ours. His name needs to be lifted up. There's so many in pulpits that are wasting so much time glorifying themselves that they forget that Christ is the one who deserves their glory. He must increase. We must decrease. So, as you go through your life, as we go through our lives, we need to understand that it is Christ who deserves glory. It is Christ who we testify of. We need to be like John. We need to be the best men looking at Christ and, and, and joyful that people are hearing what He has to say and we tell them what He has to say through the Word of God by giving them the law and the gospel and showing them who Christ is. That's how we do it. Now as we go into this last section, this right here 
is more than just a, 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 a cute statement. This last piece of this text is, is very theological. It's very deep. And I want to look at it on the level that it should be looked at. One that we can understand what is being said here. So let me read verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is an exposing of Christ in his true nature. Let's look at who Christ is in his nature. Because what we have here in this, in this statement is something that we learned about Wednesday. We have divine revelation. Divine revelation. I like how, how it was taught uh, Wednesday by Brother Gizzard. That divine revelation is basically God removing everything to you, for you to see him. He's invading his own privacy to show you himself. This is a clear revealing of Christ. He is revealing himself as God the Son. God from forever. God from all time. God eternally. He has come down from above. He has come down from heaven. He has what we call condescended to this earth to take on flesh for a specific purpose. You see, he was forever with the Father in the person of the Son. And then, when the fullness of time came, he came to this earth. This is preaching the gospel. Christ is preaching the gospel. We see here, he went to the Judean countryside and he gave the gospel and he was baptizing. He is giving people the words of life. How do we know that? Well, we see it all throughout John for sure. That Christ is the one who gives the words of life to men. Not anybody else. Christ. He's establishing the foundations of Christianity because it says here that He who God has sent utters the words of God. God himself came and spoke. And he's establishing the foundations of Christianity. He establishes justification that it's only through faith in Christ. He establishes salvation that it is through the blood shed upon the cross just like the serpent raised up. Remember the bronze serpent just like it was raised up and whoever looked upon it would not die. Christ was raised up and whoever looks to him will be saved. 
That is all in what Christ preaches. Many would say, we can't identify the gospel because Jesus preached the gospel and, and, and Jesus never preached, I came to die and save you from your sins. Yes, he does. You want chapter and verse, John 3, 14 and 15. He says, just like the serpent was raised up and whoever looked upon the serpent would live, I will be raised up and whoever believes on me will have eternal life. Jesus preached penal substitutionary atonement as part of the gospel. He did. Let's look very clearly at the verses that we have come to here at the end of, of these this set because it's pretty important. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is speaking of authority, of Christ's authority. All authority to speak what he has been speaking has been given. The Godhead, the Trinity said, you will be the one who speaks the words of life on earth. You are going to be, he's going to be God incarnate. He's going to be God in, in, in human flesh. He is all God, all man. And the words he speaks will have the authority of God. How do we know that he has that authority? We go on to John 12, verse 49 and 50. John 12, 49 and 50 says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. All authority was given to Christ. He was given authority to preach his message from the Father. He was given the words of eternal life. And he spoke those words, and it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is an important verse to end this chapter with. Jesus, in this, in this chapter, chapter 3, it only took us three weeks to get through chapter 3, yet it was one of the most full chapters we've ever seen, I think, that I've ever preached. It's got so much power in it. Because in this chapter, Jesus has given us the way to salvation. What is the way to salvation? Believe on the Son. Look to the Son. He is the serpent raised up in the wilderness. And even though you're dead in your sins, if you'll just look upon Him, you will live. Jesus is the way. As He spoke of that serpent, if they were bent, they were dying. And all they had to do was just look to the sun. Look to the serpent. And as you look to Christ, you see He does the work of salvation, not me. The, the most hopeless thing I could tell you is that if you can just follow the law and be good, you'll make it to heaven. I have just heaped upon you a weight and a burden you cannot bear. Yet Christ Himself stretched out his hands upon the cross 
bore all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our evil and disgustingness, took the full wrath for it, and now we just look to Him and trust in Christ. John's given the result. If we believe in the Son, we will have eternal life. You heard the verse that I, the verses that I read during our Lord's Supper. He said, "All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and if anyone comes to me, I will not cast him out. If you believe in Christ and trust in Him, you're His. Period. You have eternal life, and that is a promise, and that is a promise you can take to the bank. Everything else in this life will fail you." The one promise you can count on is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But it is clear that we must obey the Son because it says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is the central message of the Son? I would say we go back to the first thing he said. In Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15. It says very clearly, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom, is of, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is the central message that we must obey? Repent and believe in the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that we have a creator who requires certain things of us. And we must do these things to be perfectly righteous. There's only one problem. We are riddled with sin. We are born sinful. And we cannot follow those laws. Therefore, we must have help because we're in trouble. And where does that help come from? It comes from God Himself, God the Son, coming, dying to save us. That's where it comes from. And if He does, we must respond with repentance and trust. And if we do, we have eternal life. But what if we don't? It says that the wrath of God remains. Many would say, hell is not preached in the scriptures. That is absolutely false teaching. Hope I don't burst any bubbles here. Ben Carson was interviewed. Everybody loved Ben Carson because they said he's a Christian and he's awesome. Ben Carson is a Seventh-day Adventist. He was interviewed about the existence of hell. He said he doesn't believe that for 70-something years of somebody's life, if they reject Christ and they sin during that time, that he doesn't think that the, the punishment of hell matches the, uh, the, uh, the wrong done. He believes in annihilation. He believes you die and you just go away. That is not what Jesus taught. 
Jesus said that there was a rich man who went to hell. And in hell he lifted up his eyes in torment and he begged for water and he couldn't get it. Hell is a reality. The wrath of God is in hell. Here's another interesting thing. A lot of people say, get ready for this. If you've never heard this, get ready. You may have heard me preach before, but you may not have. Many people say that hell is the absence of God. That is, not also, that is also not taught in Scripture. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God in wrath and no grace. The wrath of God constantly poured out. So what we need to understand is, if we reject Christ in this life, we will face that time. We will have the wrath of God remaining upon us. So what's the best thing to do? To repent and believe the gospel, to trust in Christ, and to be in Him, be engrafted, and then get baptized. Without Christ, we only have wrath to look forward to. But thanks be to God that for us who are in Him, we have a promise. That promise is eternal life with Him in a glorified body. So, I think these verses actually leave us with a lot of things to take with us and think on. First, baptism is an essential Christian sacrament, and we need to take it seriously. And we need to look back to the moment when we were baptized and look back at it as a joyous event where we saw so many things about us change. We were we were buried and rose again with Christ. We were engrafted into the family. We have fellowship with Christ. Those are wonderful things to know. Secondly, our job, who are ministers of Christ, those who preach the gospel or teach people, our job is not to point to ourselves and lift ourselves up. Our job is to point to Christ. We must decrease. He must increase. And that leads me to the third. We're not growing our kingdom. We're growing His kingdom. We don't have to build huge facilities and have the doors busted down by bringing in the goats for entertainment. Our job is to turn the goats into sheep. Like Arlie Ray said, we don't listen to the goats. We listen to God. Fourthly, this is an important one, and I'm glad uh, Brother Garrett taught on it this morning in Sunday school. Because one thing, I don't know about you, one thing was the fact that the people in Sunday school who were answering questions knew what they were talking about. That was awesome. It wasn't like people didn't know the gospel in this church. How could you not know the gospel in this church? I won't leave it alone. I won't let you guys forget it. It's like... um. Martin Luther said about the gospel. He said, he was asked, why do you preach it every Sunday? Why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? He says, because as soon as you walk out the door, you forget. We need to know the gospel. So, that is the point. We must know and preach the gospel. Fifthly, Jesus Christ is all God and all man. He is God the Son. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is exactly who He has said He is and who is described by John here in Scripture. Sixth, 
Christ has all authority. <clears throat> that doesn't sound like it's very controversial to us, does it? That, that's not controversial to me to think that Jesus has all authority. Yet, it's controversial in the church today because there's a whole segment of the church that believes that they have the authority, that they God can do nothing in this earth without their permission. When Jesus was ascending to the Father, do you know what he said? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. No, to me. Christ has the authority, not us. Seven. This doesn't sound very profound. But please, think on what I'm fixing to say to you. We must believe in Him. We must believe in Christ. Because I can believe in myself all I want. I can believe in another preacher. I can believe in what I think. But if I don't believe in Christ, I have zero hope in this world. If I don't believe in Christ, I have hell to look forward to. I must believe in Him and trust in Him. Six, or I mean, not six, eight. We must obey His command to repent and believe the gospel. If we do, we have eternal life. What is, the, what is the formula for salvation? Jesus said it. John said it. Paul taught it. Peter taught it. John taught it. They all taught it. It was to repent and trust in Christ. That is how we are saved. Number nine. If we don't obey, we will be the recipients of His wrath for all eternity. There is no... Obliteration, there is no annihilation. You will face the wrath of God in this in the next life if you do not repent and trust in Him in this life. And number 10, and this is a point that's important to look at with John chapter 3 that I wish the progressive and emergent leaders would look at. They need to read John chapter 3. The entire chapter points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not subjective. It's not, oh, we don't know what Jesus preached. He wasn't preaching he died for our sins. Yes, he was. He even said later, what, what was that? I forgot the verse that you said, but it basically says, Jesus said, repentance for your sins. In remission for your sins, you must repent to be saved. In Luke 24. So you must... Trust in Christ as the propitiation for your sin. Repent of your sin and trust in Him. That's what Jesus taught. That is not subjective. That is objective truth. It's not my truth. It's not your truth. It's the truth. So, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that these words are clear. There's no mystery about who Jesus was. There's no mystery in what He came to do. There's no mystery in what the gospel is. You have clearly written it in your book. We thank you for that. Father, we pray right now that you would help us to understand it more deeply, to take it more seriously, and to clearly and lovingly understand what you have to say to us. We thank you for it. Help us to be changed by what your word says. And God, we thank you so much that it is for us and we can read it. Father, I ask that you would...
be the pebble in the shoe to those who do not believe. If those, if anyone would hear this, but this would be something that torments them at night until they must repent and trust in you. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have no hope in ourselves, but only in Christ as the propitiation and the salvation for us. That we can trust in him and repent of our sins and our righteousness is filthy rags, but his righteousness, which is pure and holy, will be imputed to us through him. God, we thank you for that. Father, I ask that you would help us to take that very seriously and understand exactly what you're trying to say to us in it. God, pierce the heart of the sinner. Sinner, you must repent and trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul. He is your only hope in this life, and he is your only hope outside of this life. Father, we thank you. Bless each family here. In Christ's name, amen.